Hello everyone, welcome to another Laboratory News podcast. Thanks very much for being here. Hope everyone is well. Right, now if I say to you the word turtle, you might imagine certain things. You might imagine a creature that is endangered, a creature that is mysterious, and a creature that is certainly gentle. But as with most things in life, it's always worth questioning one's assumptions, especially with that last point. I didn't realise that it's basically impossible to stop a turtle physically. <laughs> it, it just rolls you over. It's literally a, a very heavy, hard-shelled bulldozer that just pushes you over. That was the voice of the intrepid Dr. Yeroen Ingalls, marine ecologist from the Florida State University. Now, the reason Dr. Ingalls has been wrestling with turtles over the last few years is all to do with microscopic myofauna. It turns out there were more of these things than anyone realised on the back of loggerhead turtles. So I caught up with Yeren to find out why this is, what it might mean, and how exactly you stop yourself being rolled over by a turtle in order to take a sample. Yeah, so I'm a, a myofauna ecologist. I, I work normally with the um, benthic organisms, uh, the microscopic ones, the, the ones that are, like, tend to be smaller than one millimetre. So the entire planet is, is completely filled with these little organisms that live on the seafloor uh, for marine environments, but also in riverbeds and in, in soils uh, in terrestrial environments. So they're called myofauna. So they tend to be, you know, it's an arbitrary size class in the sense that um, anything that's smaller than one millimetre um, goes through a one millimetre sieve, basically, and then remains on a 32 micrometre, which is 32 thousandths of, of a millimetre. Anything greater than that, we uh, arbitrarily term uh, myofauna. And it includes a, a huge amount of organisms, um, from copepods, uh, nematodes, tardigrades, or moss bears, or water bears, also known as. Uh, there's about 20 uh, phyla. Um, so very, very diverse. But we, we focus on nematodes in our lab. Ah, now the ears of any biologist should have pricked up at the mention of nematodes. They are, after all, perhaps the most famous model organism in the field used to study, well, you name it, really. They're easy to culture. They're very well understood from a genetic standpoint. And in fact, they're transparent, which makes them ideal organisms to use in studies. They are very much the lab mice of the myofauna world. However, that isn't why Yerowin was interested in them. It's been said that four out of five animals on this planet are nematodes. Uh, and a recent study showed that soil nematodes uh, have about 80% of the biomass compared to human biomass on Earth. And that's just soils. So if you would add all the marine nematodes, we would have a huge amount of biomass. And we're talking trillions of organisms here. Um, so they live everywhere. But normally, people would look at them on the seafloor. If you're a marine myofauna ecologist, you would look at the seafloor to find these little critters. And they live in between the sediments. They live in between the spaces made by sand grains and mud, uh, mud particles. Okay, so if you're interested in these mud and sand dwelling worms, why would you end up looking at turtles then? Uh, I have a colleague in Brazil called Giovanni Santos from the Federal University of Pernambuco in Recife. And we're, we're friends and we've 
been doing research together for uh, on and off for uh, quite a few years now. And um, I was involved in a study that he did with his students uh, in Recife, looking at what lives on hawksbill turtles. Um, and it showed that they are, there's a lot of them on hawksbill turtles, these little Maya fauna critters. Um, so there seems to be like a general theme that turtles, at least some turtles, some more than others, carry these tiny organisms uh, on their backs. Now, this is not a new, it's not a new thing. I mean, people have investigated um, animals and plants living on the backs and the shells of turtles for, for quite a while now. Um, but nobody's really looked at the tiny stuff on them. Um, so when I arrived here, um, we noticed that there was uh, uh, Dr. Mariana Fuentes, who's a turtle ecologist here at uh, Florida State University. So we got in touch and, and they, they had a, a survey going on on St. George Island, which is like a type of barrier island close by. And it seems to be a hotspot for, um, for loggerhead turtles. It's, it's one of the recovery units in the Gulf of Mexico. So we get a high density of loggerhead turtles nesting every year on those beaches. And so they had a survey going, so we kind of plugged our project in. We got the Brazilians over, uh, kind of a boot camp uh, with, the, with the Brazilian uh, Maya Fauna team. And we spent two weeks in the field, basically following turtles, trying to find them uh, when the females are nesting. Okay, so hang on a minute. You're on a beautiful Floridian barrier island tracking turtles. On behalf of everyone that's based in a lab or at the moment trapped at home doing their science, I think it's worth pointing out you're in danger of making us very jealous. Well, I'm going to make you jealous and not jealous. It's, it is hard work. It is excruciating work uh, in the sense that, so it's two weeks, it's literally boot camp. So in 2018, we rented a house. Uh, we had some funding to rent a large house and we have anywhere between 10 and 20 people at one time. Um, we set up our schedule and uh, we have a, a long stretch of beach. The island is quite long and we split it up in several sections. And the, the first few days we start at 9 p.m. and we walk till 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. So it's during the night. That's when the loggerheads uh, crawl onto the beach and, and nest. Um, so we don't get burnt in the sun during the day. Uh, but the conditions are such at that time of year, which is usually in end of May, June, uh, when it's the peak of the nesting season here. It's still kind of like 25, 30 or more sometimes degrees centigrade at night. So it's hot, it's often 100% humidity, it's muggy, uh, it's a lot of bugs, a lot of mosquitoes. So basically our preparation is massage the calves, spray with whatever you can find to repel the mosquitoes. Usually we wear long trousers and long sleeves because otherwise it becomes unbearable. Um, uh, good shoes and then we walk between 10 and 15 kilometers sometimes a bit more um, each night with a backpack with our sampling kit and it's fun it kind of removes you a bit from reality after after two weeks um, but also you have to say you have to switch night and day which is not it's not an easy thing to do to just switch night and day. And we had the, the additional complication from our perspective is that we, we needed to process those samples as soon as possible because we had the Brazilian team for a limited time there. So basically it meant that we, you know, we set up for walks uh, in the evening uh, until early morning, 5, 6 a.m. Um, but then basically we get a few hours sleep, but then we get up, uh, we eat something and get straight into the uh, 
processing of the samples and sorting the samples. Okay, so despite the idyllic setting and the beautiful creatures, it's clearly gruelling work. We do have people that fall ill or after a few days have difficulty with muscles or, or pull, them, pull the muscle or the, the physical, uh, physical effort. Um, we rely heavily on volunteers and undergrads and graduate students that basically join the boot camp and they do not get paid for that. Um, so for them it's an experience, but we could not do it without, without them. Loggerhead turtles are, of course, currently endangered, so presumably not just anyone can start wrestling them and sampling their shells. Yeah, yeah. So we are, um, we're regular. Well, we have a particular permit, and of course, it's combined with the turtle survey as well. So it is the, the turtle biologists and ecologists do their uh, thing as well, which is measuring the turtle, checking for tags, flipper tags, and, and, and placing tags. There aren't any uh, pit tags, which is basically a scannable chip that they insert in the shoulder region, I believe, measuring the turtle, assessing its condition, etc. And all, all these things happen, uh, are only allowed to happen once the, the nest has been completed. So once the exit and the, um, the turtle starts covering the nest, only then are we allowed to come in and, and do the, our, our work with the least amount of interference as possible. That's why we can't interrupt in the entire process of next nest selection, nest site selection and, and nesting, etc. but only afterwards. But our sampling effort itself to get everything off that carapace was, is very intense because um, there's only one thing on the mind of that turtle when it finished nesting, let's go back to the sea. And I didn't realize that it's basically impossible to stop a turtle physically. <laughs> it, it just rolls you over. It's literally a, a very heavy, hard-shelled bulldozer that just pushes you over. That is incredible, isn't it? So in the face of this natural bulldozer, how do you persuade it to allow you to sample its shell? So there's certain techniques. You kind of tap it gently on the carapace and... Um, it'll move the other way. It'll go away from the little tap. That that sometimes works. Um, or you hold the um, your hands. Uh, we have to wear gloves at all time as well. That's it's um, part of the permits and the regulations we have to abide by. Um, you cover the eyes. Um, some remain calm or become calm. Uh, others don't like it and start trying to bite you. Um, so a lot of the time, we're basically sampling um, as the turtle is moving. So clearly an incredible amount of effort goes into this undertaking. So it's worth turning our attention now to why. Why bother finding out about these particular myofauna on this particular creature? It is a very intriguing um, substrate for the organisms I'm interested in because it's a hard shell. So you can kind of compare it um, with other hard substrates to see how complex it really is compared to like rocks or, you know, um, sea defenses, for instance. From a, that perspective, it's really interesting to compare. And of course, they're mobile, which is one of the big points of the paper. They're, they're large numbers and they swim large distances. So whatever they're carrying on their backs has to come from somewhere and is going somewhere. So that's kind of the one of the main hypotheses that we had uh, was one, you know, is there a link between where the turtle has been and where we find it, and can we assess that link using these tiny critters? 
Right, so in essence, these myofauna are like biomarkers for a journey of a turtle, like a stamped passport that could tell us where it's been. Yeah, the, the, this kind of research has been done with uh, things like barnacles. Um, they, they look at isotopes, which is basically following the principle you are what you eat. So you can you can do an isotope analysis on, on barnacle tissues and it'll give you an indication of what that barnacle's been eating. And then you can kind of backtrack that to certain areas, potential areas where the food sources are that the barnacle's been eating. And hence, that will also give you an indication of where the turtle might have been. So uh, there have been um, you know, researchers that, that investigate that aspect um, by using, for instance, barnacles. And, uh, but the, the cool thing about myofauna is that there's just huge, huge numbers. OK, so that's the theory, and it's a fascinating one. But did Yerowin's recent work on sampling the turtle shell shed any light on this? So what we saw was that we have several groups of communities living on these turtles. And then we have to start wondering why. So why is a community that lives on that turtle different compared to that turtle? And why do we find groups of turtles that have similar communities all nesting on the same beach? So the hypothesis there is that, okay, these turtles either come from different areas or they, at some point, their shells were colonized by organisms from a particular area habitat or region. So tracking that back, we, we would love to do more um, taxonomic analysis to see whether we can find species that are, for instance, only found in other in particular areas in the Gulf of Mexico. Like I mentioned before, you could do that with isotopes as well, potentially, but it gives you a vague idea. It's not going to tell you that beach and that, you know, in that area. So it can give us some indication. But the, the interesting part would be that if, if it would be true that different communities of epibionts actually are linked to different populations of turtles. And that's why we have another PhD student who's actually looking into that. He's going to compare the epibiont data that we have with the, the actual turtle biology. And he's got isotope samples on turtles and potential DNA, DNA samples of these turtles as well. So we're going to see whether there's a link there. As to whether we are we going to do that in other beaches and other places of the world, I would love to. You know, I would I would love to go to different areas and um, and test these same hypotheses um, potentially on different species. But it, it, I think it appears that the loggerheads are pretty much the champions of epibionts density and diversity. I think um, so the some other species of turtles are, are relatively clean compared to loggerheads. So learning something about the turtles from the myofauna on its shell could tell us something really interesting. But it's not a one-way street. It turns out the turtles could answer something of a mystery about nematode existence. It's very interesting from a myofauna perspective because most of these organisms are exclusively benthic. They basically live on the seafloor and they never leave it. But they don't have pelagic larvae, so their larvae do not swim and get swept away in currents. So how is it then that in some cases we find species that live thousands of kilometers apart if they can't swim there or there's other means of them having been separate, whether that's geological, for instance, over geological time, the, the, the physical area has separated and the same species occurs in different places, or there's some means of exchange. 
So, could it be then that the nematodes are actually hitching a ride on the shell of a turtle? And, if so, this poses another question, doesn't it? We know that turtles are endangered, so are there really enough of them to give the nematodes the worldwide distribution that they've got? We thought about how many turtles are there actually. Total numbers have decim- been decimated since the, like the 19th century. So if you consider uh, hundreds of years back, there's huge amounts of, uh, large amounts of turtles. And if each of these turtles carry large amounts of organisms uh, on them, then that could be potentially a, uh, a mechanism of exchange between remote locations for these tiny critters. The turtle basically acting as a vector for exchange for these organisms. So it could, it could uh, contribute to our understanding of how small organisms distribute, are distributed across the, the globe, and especially between coastal areas where turtles you know, are, are often seen. Okay, so forget bulldozers then. Really what they are is the limousine of the sea transporting myofauna from coast to coast. But there is a flip side to all this, isn't there? If turtle numbers have indeed been decimated, does that mean that the transport links for myofauna to move around has been reduced. Exactly, and all the other ones that uh, live on on the turtles. Uh, of course, we don't really have an idea of how much exchange there really is. We can only guesstimate, you know, back of the envelope kind of calculations. Um, considering the numbers are not small, it could potentially have a uh, have an impact. It's also because we're not really uh, we don't really know that much about specific processes of colonization. How does it work? You know, which which organisms are successful on staying on the on the turtle? You know, and when a turtle arrives somewhere else, how many organisms come off? So what we're, what we're really excited by is that now that we've cleaned number of the, they come back to the same area every two to four years to nest again. So if we get tagged and clean turtles back in our surveys in two, three years, well, two to four years. So we we had 2018. So actually this year was the first opportunity to maybe find a couple that have been cleaned. So, and then we have a kind of what we call a T0. So we know exactly when we've removed everything. So we have a three-year timeline where we know exactly what has arrived on that carapace in three years' time, which is quite, quite exciting from a scientific perspective. The brilliant Dr. Yeroen Ingalls there. Now, before I let you go, just one final thought. Turtles obviously hold a very special place in mythology. A quick Google search tells me that there are no less than 20 times where a turtle has cropped up in ancient mythology, often playing a key role in some kind of creation story. And perhaps because of this, it's also cropped up in modern fiction as well. Perhaps most famously in this country is Terry Pratchett's Great Atuin that features in the Discworld series of books. Now, to me, Yeroen's recent work suggests that these early observations that perhaps then got turned into myth, well, they were kind of onto something. It's true. You can see why they would they would have thought that. There's a, you know, there's a lot of things living on the back of a turtle. And I don't think there is a better note on which to end. So with that, I'll say thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you.